Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today, more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. Today, I have a wonderful conversation with one of the world's foremost storytellers, Elliot Kotek. Elliot's canvas is documentaries, miniseries, films, videos, photographs. The secret to his success is his humble nature in pulling together a collaboration and a network of amazing partners to tell the stories of his clients. He brings together in his nation of artists, which is a wonderful name for a company, talented Oscar and Sundance caliber writers and directors, editors and photographers, engineers and scientists. And then he does an amazing job of supporting the client to show them that they can let go, that they can find the essence of the story, and then they can tell it in a most extraordinary way to make sure that their social impact, that they have invested so many likely millions of dollars and years of commitment to reaches and impacts its intended audiences. Elliot's gonna share with us at least a dozen insights that will help your social impact, get its story across to so many incredible people who need to hear it, who want to join you, and will just help you in your journey to make a profound impact on societal issues today and tomorrow. Elliot is the founder and CEO of the Nation of Artists and Beyond Cinema, He co-founded Not Impossible. He's on the board of Health Effect. And he often speaks on the subjects of storytelling, innovation, collaboration, technology for good. Elliot describes himself as a mongrel, which I think is so funny. Um, he, He has degrees in law, in science. He was a practicing attorney, but I think he got religion before he attended the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute in New York. And he also completed UCLA's professional screenwriting program. He's also gotten some business education at the Kellogg School of Management. And he has just done so many wonderful pieces in storytelling from documentaries to miniseries to branded content and beyond. And today, Elliot is going to talk with us about all of his insights about how do you take this great social impact work that we're all doing? How do you bring it to life? How do you create content that you just have to have to watch and listen to? So, Elliot, um, I want to embarrass you a little bit more before we get going. I always love to start my conversations about numbers, by the numbers. And usually it's, you know, 26,000 employees and 36 billion in revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Elliot's numbers are from the awards he has won. Um, I'm jealous because he's won the Titanium Award at Cannes for his project, Daniel. And I hope he's going to talk about that. Um, he's won, uh, one show awards, Maggie awards, Telly awards, AICP awards, Clio awards, on and on and on. His work has also amassed more than 1.5 billion media impressions. He's also by the numbers probably given, oh, hundreds of, uh, speeches and been involved in lectures. So he's been behind the camera and in front of the camera per se. And he's spoken to audiences at the United Nations, South by Southwest, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Institute for Peace, Discovery Education. He's been at the Maker Fair and so many other places. So, 
With that, I want to start with Elliot. Like, who really is Elliot Kotek? Oh, man, that is a great question. And one that, <laughs> one that a lot of people have uh, trouble um, speaking on, I guess, because I tell other people's stories so often. Right. My own story has been a journey of, I, I call it a journey of yeses. Basically, I've said yes to anything that I thought was cool or that I wanted to be a part of. And that has led me on this unconventional journey through science, through law, to from Australia to New York, from content to social impact content specifically as a North Star and uh, to be driven by impact in this way. You know, it's a, I think it's a reflection always of the people who informed you sometimes you run away from poor examples i had the benefit of good examples in my parents and grandparents and they always had a social mindset and a community giving aspect um that is addictive and at some point you know when you're watching uh, the simpsons as a kid and your parents are watching Nat Geo <laughs> and you just want to you, you give anything to change the channel and then as you grow up you start watching the same things they were watching ah, you like, then you know you're your parents right that's right you've come around you've come around to the good side so I want to what is your purpose Elliot it's not law it's not science what is your purpose no, my purpose is just making a difference right and I, I you know I, I qualify it with various phrases and for my business, uh, for Nation of Artists, it's um, ideas plus empathy equal impact. And I think bringing ideas to the world that can be impactful, I think, is a great differentiator for quite a few creatives. And then bringing empathy to that lens as a key ingredient that makes up 50% of that equation, um, I think, is a game changer as has been documented so much in the last few years, but it's just, you know, it's in my DNA. I know it's in yours, but if you bring that human aspect to something, it has to be right and it can always be defended. And then on a personal note, my motto is more and bigger and with good people. I love what I do. I just want to do it more. I just want to keep having bigger and bigger impact and I only want to work with good people. So that's it. So we, I promised our listeners that we are going to have at least 10 fabulous insights about storytelling because, you know, there, again, as I said, there's so many great initiatives and great programs that are having huge impact. You never know about them. So the first insight I'd love you to start talking about is collaboration because that's a core tenet for Nation of Artists, and the amazing work you're doing. And I have to tease our listeners because Elliot's got um, a new documentary coming out on NBC Peacock, the new streaming service called Black Boys. Um, he's already got um, a series on CNBC that he's done with uh, for McKinsey called The Next Normal. Um, he's um, been on Facebook Watch and other places. And I always feel when I work with Elliot that I am the most important client that he ever has. So I don't know how he's in so many places. So talk to oh, yeah. us and our listeners about the power of collaboration in storytelling and your work. Look, I think that last statement that you said, that's super important to me. It's just when I'm working with a client, they don't want to hear about how busy you are. And they don't want to hear about what other projects you've got going on. They do come to you because they know that you're actively working. And so they have a trust that you're good at what you do. Um, but that relationship between client and me uh, and us, um, client and consultant, whatever you want to call it, is uh, they want to know that you're listening to them, that you're thinking about them, and that you're focused on their story, their solutions, their aspects, their projects, right? So I think like a lot of people like to talk about how busy they are and what calls they just got off. Um, but um, I think it is really important to remain kind of singular and focused with your clients. So I think collaboration is key to creativity. I think that it used to be the case that um, 
you needed to know that there were a bunch of people working on a project for you. And the old agency model is still true, I think, for really big brands that need a large volume of work. But otherwise, what you're looking for is someone who can curate the right group of people um, together to work on a project that is specific and unique to you, right? And I think that we also view creative collaboration and creativity now as much as a science as an art, right? Because what's happening is if you think about the people who you consider to be the most creative, a lot of times they're also the person who connects the dots between people the best. Because there's so much information out there now that the ability to synthesize that information and synthesize the people who are out there who can work on your project and bring them together to create something specifically for you is a real art form in and of itself. But it's, um, that connectivity that gives people the impression of creativity now, I think. And so part of that is that collaborative aspect, right? If you can bring the right people on board, have them do some really good listening to each other as much as to the client, then you can really craft something original you can really bring people's aspects. And we talk about diversity, right, all the time now, and it's such a buzzword. But what does that mean? A lot of people just think that means different ethnicities, different ethnographies, different races and religions. But really what it means is people who come from different experiences, right? And it could be as much coming from a different experience that day as something that's been ingrained in them from generations, right? So if you can bring together a diverse group of people who have a diverse set of experiences, race, religion, socioeconomic status, um, what their composition is in terms of a family unit, what their parental situation was, what their family unit was growing up, then that diversity leads to unique thought and, and unique collaborative opportunities. In a podcast, it's really hard to see the beautiful storytelling that Elliot does in in film and video. And we're going to make sure in our show notes to um, give all sorts of links to his best creations. You won a Titanium Award at the can- at Cannes. That's incredible. There are so few people on the planet that have a Titanium, and that was for Project Daniel. So, um, can you talk about why Project Daniel was so special? Yeah, sure. I mean, at the time, we're talking about the end of 2013. Um, so we were looking at various technologies and reading various stories. And we came across this story in Time magazine that someone sent through to the office. And it was about this doctor in the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. And he was an American guy, Dr. Tom Katana who had gone to Brown University, played football there, etc. And he became a doctor, went out to Sudan um, and was working with this group of Sudanese people in the Nuba Mountains. Um, and he was really the only doctor servicing a population of about 600,000 people. And things had gotten really rough there. The Bashir, who, who was leading the country, had been convicted of war crimes. This is a guy who had been convicted of war crimes, but still was remaining in power and was bombing the Nuba Mountains because the Nuba had, the Nubans had fought for the South, for South Sudan in the battle against Sudan. Um, but when the border lines were drawn, they were, they were kind of caught um, on the north side of that border. So they were still in Sudan proper, but had fought against that government. And so the government at the time was bombing this, these civilians um, and causing incredible damage because it was kind of messy stuff too, right? Like, a, you know, dirty bombs that scattered shrapnel everywhere. And a lot of kids were presenting with... Um, with limbs that needed to be amputated. So this Dr. Tom was doing everything from delivering babies to amputating kids' arms. And when we read about this um, innovator in South Africa, Richard Van Ars, who had created a, ro- a 3D-printed hand called the RoboHand, um, and this is right at the beginning of consumer access to 3D printers, um, we thought we could bring him in on the project. And so we flew him out from South 
South Africa. We had a super collaborative team that came from everywhere, physical therapists from New York, engineers from different states. We had people who'd worked on prostheses in the Middle East. Um, we had all these different people, a 3D printer company owner, uh, Brooke, who came from Sacramento. Um, and so we had all these people come together to think about what could be helpful to Dr. Tom and the children of this region who were losing so many, um, you know, really essential, like essential functions. Um, and they were losing their independence a lot of times. And so the, the article in time also mentioned Daniel, who was a boy who had lost both his limbs um, as a result of a bomb blast. Like he'd gone and run and hid behind a tree and he hugged the tree. So his body was protected, but his arms were exposed. And so the bomb like li literally tore his the front of his arms to shreds. And once those were amputated, he needed another little boy to look after him. And that little boy would help feed him, would wash his second set of clothes, um, and basically was his little minder and helper. And so we thought, okay, can this 3D printer consumer technology be used to set up what became the world's first 3D printing prosthetics lab in the Nuba Mountains to print limbs for kids who were the victims of this war-torn tragedy, right? And so we sent a team um, to Sudan in uh, October of 2013, and they spent time in South Sudan and then made their way uh, across the border into the Nuba Mountain, set up this uh, 3D printer station and printed at first a limb for Daniel and then for another boy and then taught the locals how to print them as well so that they could keep going once the, once the team had left. That was like a big aspect. Like how do you at least attempt to make it sustainable? And so we collaborated with a lot of people on the ground and, of course, there were all these obstacles that needed to be overcome that are not foreseeable until you get there. Um, but the resulting story of this boy being able to feed himself independently for the first time in two years was one that really captured everybody's imaginations. And it also looked at the technology and said, okay, here's a piece of technology that people are using to create um, iPhone accessories. And how can it best serve humanity? Who can we give it? Who can we give access to it that will potentially be a game changer? Where will it have the greatest impact? And so, if you look at technology, right? It's like, yeah, it's ubiquitous here in the US and other countries. But again, like if you think about it from an access point, there are people who can't afford it, or people who can't physically get it because of where it's geographically located or people who can't physically utilize it unless it's adapted. So when you look at different pieces of a technology, if you make even some simple technologies accessible in one of those three ways, geographically, financially, or physically, then you open it up to a world of possibility. So at the time we were like, okay, there's technology and then there's technology for the sake of humanity. And so how do, we, how do we give technology its ultimate purpose and give it its best life? Um, and that was, that was why it resonated so strongly because it was a single example, a boy being able to feed himself, um, that was so easy to conceptualize and identify that the power of technology, this simple consumer available technology could have this direct impact in one kid's life who was then representative of a group of people around the world who, who would ultimately benefit from this revolution. Yeah, do I understand that HP technology was part of this? Um, HP were beautifully the beautiful sponsors of our following project. Um, at the time, that was Intel who came on board. Okay. Um, and also a, an engineering company in New York called Press Apart Technologies. And so Press Apart came on board first and then Intel biggest. Um, and then uh, provided us with some equipment to take out there, some things to gift to the kids as well. Um, and so there was... Uh, uh, and Intel released a commercial campaign in addition to the documentary content that we did. On Project Daniel. So HP, right. was that part of Don's voice? 
That's right. So our following, our follow-up project was Don's Voice, which was providing a system to a farmer in Canada. Um, and the farmer had ALS or motor neuron disease. So his body had, had shut down and he was only able to kind of move his eyes. Um, Lou Gehrig's disease is another name for it, of course. And so he, because he was only able to move his eyes and because he got sick, in the mid-90s um, and was rural, he wasn't really familiar with personal computing. Um, and so he never really learned how to utilize different technologies before he got sick. So he was still using to communicate a letter sheet that was held up to him by someone else. Um, most often his wife, but other workers as well, would hold up a letter sheet where all the letters were divided up into quadrants and he would blink his way through spelling words which is obviously an arduous task and requires the presence of someone else and so our engineer there took um that letter sheet and created an interface on an hp computer for him and he was able to then just look at the various quadrants pull those letters into the middle and then the middle also had predictive text just like our phones have and so the more you use it the more familiar it becomes with our language specifically and so then he was able to um, kind of type out sentences on his own and it had voice text to voice so at the end of a sentence it could speak the sentence that he'd constructed so he used it um most notably um to tell his wife he loved her i know it's um, so it's so, independently for the oh first God, time in chilling. 15 it's, years yeah, yeah and we beautiful. released that with hp around valentine's day so it was a, a text story but it was also a love story um and yeah, it was that was a great, a great follow on. I'm like thinking about a client, and I'm thinking about you. And so you're always aware of a subtext story coming up. Um, how does the client do? They direct you to do that, or do they just say, "Elliot, we trust you. You know, go in this direction." There's a there's a brief. What's the best way that we can share with our listeners? to be a great client so you don't get in the way, but you just have enough direction so uh, it fulfills the client's objectives? Yeah, you know what? Clients can come to us in any sort of ways. Like sometimes they're just looking for an idea and they have a product, right? They're like, okay, we have a product, whether that is a, an automobile or a, a new piece of technology that has never been seen before. And we look at it and say, well, how can this change someone's life? Or what meaning does this, um, you know, this object have? Or what could it have? Or what could it do? And then we kind of come up with the concepts and talk about the why with the company, like why they've created this, what's its distinctive feature, what does that distinctive feature mean in operation, what freedoms does it give someone, what abilities does it give someone for the first time? Um, and so we really look at that. Or we say, okay, if this is not a distinctive feature, then how are pe people already using it? And are they using it in a way that is enabling them to live a more fulfilling or uh, existence in some way, right? So you're, so you're guiding the client. They, they may be more, uh, you know, features and benefits and attributes. But it sounds like, Elliot, because, that uh, you know, n not everybody's going to have the, the joy of working with you, but I want to educate clients to how they can get the best creative. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, the, and part of it is, is thinking not just in terms of the technical specs, right? The specifications of whatever it is they're selling, but what it can do right like what meaning does it have and a lot of people say well mine's just a widget it doesn't really have meaning we just sell it because people use it we're like well how are people using it and maybe if they're not using that widget to create something special maybe it's part of a life that is special right like maybe it's part so so depending on what they're looking for sometimes they just really need to get the numbers up, right? Like what it does, how it does it. Um, and they're not as concerned, in which case they're playing a commodity game, right? It's like they're just wanting to get, um, you know, they're, they're like essentially selling burgers or something, right? It's like, it's like they need to show 
how much, you know, what the price point is and how much people are getting for it. But other times they want to really create something different, something special. And that's what we do. I mean, it's really, we're looking at it from a social impact perspective. We're looking at it from an inspiration perspective. There are some things that don't really fit into social impact, but they might inspire someone to think more broadly. Mm-hmm. For example, a series we did called The New Space Race, right? Can't really be seen necessarily as being a social impact value. But what it does is it reminds people that, um, that they can participate in something as broad as the space race. They can create a company that works to develop 3D printers that work on the moon in zero gravity. They can do something small in an industry that is forward thinking. And by being involved in that way, what they're doing is they're saying, look, I don't need to be Richard Branson or Elon Musk. I don't need to be a billionaire to participate in chasing the greatest horizon man has ever seen. And obviously, man being an inclusive term <laughs> <laughs> sure. in, that, in that example, yep. but um, that 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 mankind, that person kind is seen right. That that so if we can open up that possibility, then we enable kids who are dreamers not to feel limited by anything, and so that is impactful, and that's where the social impact comes in. And then other times, the client comes to us, and they have the story already. And they just don't know how to produce it and how to put it together. And we suggest a way to get in to that story that puts us in the point of view of the story of, of the story or puts us in the point of view of the person experiencing it or, um, or takes a broader approach and looks at everything from a wider scope so that we can see the world in which the thing lives. Right. So we come up with the angles so that, so that even though they've come up with the story that we tell it in a way that even subliminally or subconsciously might have the greatest effect or the greatest representation of what the client is trying to achieve. So that's a great segue to how we got to work on our first major project, which was my special Aflac duck. So, um, you know, for our listeners, um, most of you must know about the Aflac duck, um, he's like a $20 billion asset on the balance sheet of Aflac. He's a very funny guy. He's been around for over 20 years. Um, the company also was donating because of having a big heart. Their philanthropy focused on pediatric cancer because the company started, uh, its first product was a cancer product. But they donated all those funds. They had the Aflac Cancer Center in Atlanta, but it never connected with the duck. They were all very separate. And so they asked us um, to find a way to really amplify their commitments in an authentic way. And so our idea was to create a social robot. And we went to um, some dear friends, um, Aaron Horowitz at a wonderful company called Sproutel. They're in Providence, Rhode Island. And he makes social robots for kids with diseases. And they're child-centered designed. And they're just one of a kinds and they're really, really important because children who are going through cancer go through a thousand days of treatments on average and they're lonely and they're sick. And um, this social robot is their new friend. And so we took the idea to Aflac. They loved it. They loved Aaron. Aaron spent a year studying kids and um, we were on our way. But we had to to capture this amazingly heartfelt story from children as young as three up to doctors and patients and parents. And so with that, I said, well, I know the best person in the world to tell that story, and that's Elliot. So, Elliot, can you talk to our listeners about, okay, a client comes to you with an idea, how do you truly, what are the three or four or five insights that you share with the client so you can bring out that incredible magic that their idea was created around? Well, I mean, that specific example was such a gorgeous project. Everyone who worked on it was so mindful in their approach. And even Aflac itself didn't need to establish authenticity or integrity in the space because of how much they'd done on the philanthropic side 
um, with regards to pediatric cancer. So what this was, though, for them was it was really an introduction to the marketplace nationally, internationally, of their pediatric cancer efforts. And I think it reflected a greater um, position in the world is that philanthropic efforts used to be the things that were done on the side to say, okay, cool, we make these profits, but we give back to our communities. But they were also seen as something you didn't want to necessarily communicate or boast about because it was seen as being immodest back in time, back in the day. And I think that what happened was as consumers became more active in supporting companies that were mindful the comp- and, and employees as well wanting to work somewhere that felt purposeful and felt mindful as well um, and felt valued. They wanted to work for companies who, who had that mindset. And so companies are now being asked to express that mindset more openly than ever before and have to find a way to do it authentically. And I know that's a buzzword, but they really have to find a way to do it with a depth of sincerity that means that they're not open for criticism, right? And there is that hesitation in the corporate world and that needs to be addressed. And so if you can come at it with integrity from the get-go, what you've already been doing, um, then that becomes a massive asset for you in that storytelling because you can point even just a tiny bit to that legacy. And that was important to do here too, to give a nod to their legacy that meant that um, the storytelling around the duck never felt like an ad for the insurance. It never felt like a plug or an embedding of their logo in a young kid's brain, which is what some, you know, if you were going to look at the worst case scenario for how the program was received, you know, those are the sorts of considerations that you need to take into account. But because there was integrity behind it, because there was something that they'd been doing forever, we just needed to give a nod to that to establish that authenticity. And it's organic, it's natural, it's, it's, there's nothing forceful about it. Um, but having that as a foundational pillar was really important to represent in the storytelling. And of course, the stakeholders, how everyone was coming at it with a point of view of listening. It wasn't top-down storytelling. It wasn't us saying, we're going to bring this event to this community and capture us showing it off to you or to capture us showing you or telling you how it works. It was such a holistic ground-building exercise. Uh, we, were, we were talking to the oncologists, the child life specialists, the psychologists, the parents, the kids, their siblings. And so we really invested in it from a stakeholder perspective. And again, you know, kind of, I know it sounds cliche to say spend a lot of time listening, but that's really all you need to do. They will let people will let you know how important it is for them or what specific attributes and aspects of the duck are important for them. For some kids, it's an ability for them to communicate their emotions. For others, it's a companion. For others, it's the ability to give them a psychological uh, position of power where they can play out their cancer treatment with their duck that puts them in a the kid in a position of strength or relatability. For others, it's the social aspect of the duck, the fact that it recognizes other ducks in its vicinity and lights up, and that essentially allows the kid to to social to socialize with another kid with their duck because obviously in a hospital environment they're being taken away from school and other social situations so everyone has a different touch point that makes the project special to them and if you give them the language of those touch points then they'll only ever repeat them to you but if you listen to them as to what's important to them then they'll speak to their experience, which is always going to be more emotional and more resonant with the viewer. When you went to uh, shoot children in the hospital and they were as young as three and four or Project Daniel or Don's voice, you're in very sensitive situations. I mean, with, you know, with humans who are, you know, challenged per se, how do you 
make sure that you don't, you're not intrusive, but you're inclusive, if that's correct. I mean, how do you make sure that you're not getting in the way and you're being supportive, but you're getting really, again, authentic content? Yeah, I think it really is just a case of setting expectations and making sure you communicate. A lot of um, old school documentary storytelling was shot stealing, right? It was going in and trying to get shots or old school photography where you're trying to be as minimal as possible. Now, certainly when we're in a sensitive space, we try and be as minimal a crew as possible um, so that we don't feel invasive even by our physicality. But mostly it's about communication with the parents, with the hospitals, with them knowing what to expect, um, a sense of quiet around how you operate, um, a sense of communication with the parents around what you're going to capture and also just really letting them know as well is that we're not there to exploit them, right? It's not an ad per se. What we're trying to do is help and to listen and to be of service and that they, and to give them that opportunity to say no, right? I remember when we shot, um, Aaron at his house in, Providence, Rhode Island, um, you know, just as a kind of small example is that he lives next to a, a workshop, a mill, and uh, they were, they had started up for the day and were creating a raucous and we needed the, the sound to be quiet. And I went over there and it's a massive operation. And so you're not going to get them to sh- shut down necessarily because they have to perform their work, right? It would just be too prohibitively expensive to ask them to shut down their operations. But we know also, like, when did it, we work with them? We ask them, when do you normally take breaks? And do you think that maybe today you could take your break at this time instead of that time? And in order to do that, I'm going to treat you all to whatever lunch from whatever local <laughs> um, takeout place you want, yeah, right? It's go. like, It's like always those cases of not wanting to force yourself on anyone is, I guess, the point. It's like more just working with the people around you. And we've got that good fortune of knowing that the project we're doing and the story that we're telling is one that people are not going to say, well, that's stupid, right? Like, (laughs) we can't, we're not like, so we can go to them and if, if need be, we can tell them a little bit about the objective and then more often than not, people are on board. Of course, like if kids are sick and parents don't want to share or they're feeling volatile or vulnerable, we had a lot of kids who pulled out after saying, yes, they wanted to do it, but who just didn't feel up to it at the moment, you know, after coming off treatment or being sleepy or, you know, and so that's okay, you know, and so a lot of it was patience and we went back to the hospital we went to the hospital without Aaron and took one of the prototype ducks with us um just on our own and introduced it to some kids you you did I, I think that one moment which was amazing was a little boy who was getting um some medicine and the nurse injected it into him and he screamed and then um, I know that Hannah, um, Aaron's co-founder, said, well, look, Ducky's getting, you know, an injection, too. And then the little boy went from screaming to he looked down at the duck and he said, oh, you know, can I, you know, Ducky's getting it, too. And he changed his entire, entire attitude and he was much calmer. That was a magical moment. Yeah, there were a lot of moments like that. I think Hannah. Uh, and Aaron, who co-founded Sproutel, are also, uh, you know, they're, they're magical people. They're people who put a child's interests at heart and built a business around it. That's, that's who they serve. Um, that was their reason for being. And so watching them interact and play Ninja Turtles, uh, just like, you know, I would go in and sing Paw Patrol songs. (laughs) (laughs) But that's also getting to know your audience. Like, you don't need to be a parent to know what kids like. Um, And if you don't know and don't want to guess, just ask them or look at what they're wearing or look at what's in the room. And a, a lot of, I think, storytelling over the course of history has just been people who take that position of observer, right? They're they're our greatest comics are people who are observing human and other behavior. Our greatest photographers are the ones who are observing behavior and capturing moments as they unfold. Or um, And so I think that 
as goes to you know goes to the storyteller now too it's like what are you seeing how how many um facts how many how many how many pieces of research how many pieces of information can you draw from the environment you're looking at and how do you use that to better relate to the people in front of the camera so i want to you're obviously you you have a very special soul um let's now just take a a pivot to shooting in the time of covid um, I know that when you and I talked six months ago, it was like, oh, my God, there's, you know, all production shut down. How are you going to capture any stories, do any films and documentaries? And you have just launched for McKinsey um, on CNBC, you know, the first part of a six part series. Um, how are you managing to shoot during COVID? Yeah, so we've been um, we've been very mindful about how to proceed at this time. Obviously, right? We don't want to put anyone in harm's way, and so there's been a couple of different projects. One is that we started to look at okay, how are people shooting remotely with zero human interaction, right? Relying on the subject to do most of the setups. How do you make it as easy as possible? Now, of course, technology, and everyone knows this. I'm not saying anything new. Is that the iPhone Pro and the iPhone 11 Pro is amazing. Like, I mean, it's an amazing. If I could turn up to a shoot with iPhones and not look quite unquote silly to the client, <laughs> right. you know, I probably would, you know, because you can add um, great audio, you know, pieces of audio equipment to make sure that the sound captured is okay. You can add a ring light or something very simple. Um, that makes a person that lights up a face really well, really nicely. And so you can have these kits. So the first client that we started to work with, um, during COVID was Amgen. And for them, we actually assembled a kit. So we have a Pelican case, who a lot of people just know is the kind of production hard cases that protect the equipment. And in it, we have an iPhone Pro, we have a ring light, we have a microphone that plugs into the bottom of the phone so to ensure we get good audio. Um, and, and so we have, we have something for them to, to put their laptop on so that it raises their eye line so that when they talk to camera or talk through the zoom to us, um, that their eye line is, is kept at a, at a, a nice height so that they're not crouched over the computer like you would normally be on a zoom call. And so there are things that you can do that are not difficult for um, the subject, for the talent. Um, and also there are things like Dropbox and Frame.io where people can immediately upload that footage from the camera, from the video. Either you can use the video straight off the phone or you can use uh, an app like Filmic Pro, F-I-L-M-I-C Pro, which enables you to have more control over the cameras uh, so you can shoot in a uniform way uh, between different locations and shoot at a certain speed and different frame rate and control all of that, shoot at a different warmth uh, depending on whether something is being lit by fluorescence or by incandescent bulbs. And so you can have that sense of control over the phone um, remotely almost and, and have the person... Um, who you're trying to interview, just set it up in their environment on a couple of tripods and coach them through that in a pretty easy way. Kind of like a, a list of instructions, like an Ikea thing, you know? So very hands-off. Very hands-off. Yeah. You also said that now, as we're all learning how to do our businesses during COVID, that you also have, you're out in the field now, you're shooting in how many locations around the globe? One of your new projects? Yeah, so for the CNBC series, for the next normal, um, it takes place all around the world. It's thought leaders commenting on how to do business in the new, in the in this new environment, in the next normal. And so each episode has one person from senior consultant from McKinsey and Company, and two contributors who are CEOs of major corporations like IBM or Danone or JCI. You know, so um, so what we've been doing is each episode has three contributors, right? And so and each one is in their location, so they can choose whether they're most comfortable to go into their office. Um, they can choose whether it's more comfortable for them to do uh, the taping from home. Um, some of them prefer to do it outdoors. And then from our perspective, we follow 
all the AICP, which is the um, production protocol, uh, commercial production protocols, and CDC guidelines and things like that. And and so we have um, essentially a COVID monitor. Someone on set is appointed as the COVID monitor to take everyone's temperatures as they come to set to ask them a list of questions about um, whether they've felt any any symptoms of this nature or that nature over the course of the last you know few days, whether they've been knowingly been um, in contact with a large group of people over the previous couple of weeks. And so we go through those and then also provide individual um, units of hand sanitizer. Everyone has masks and gloves. Um, there's social distance kept from the talent who, um, who obviously has to take off their mask um, during the shoot. And then uh, there's teleprompters that we can use that connect to iPads or iPhones um, that are really easy to mobilize. And so we've had crews as small as two and as large as four. So really tight crew um, go out to these different places and be able to run two cameras plus sound um, and a teleprompter in some cases. And so we've shot already in seven different cities in three countries. Uh, we're shooting in another three cities next week, um, but all in very, very rapid um, succession using local crews so no one's traveling. And so using our existing networks from having done projects like Little Miss Sumo, we used our Little Miss Sumo crew in London. Uh, we used, uh, we went out uh, the first time when we went to shoot in Paris, we had shot with French a uh, French crew in Vietnam a couple of years ago who had moved back to France. And so we reached out to them um, as a first point of call when we had to shoot in Paris. Um, we, we shot in Indianapolis for the Indy 500 and in Chicago for Aflac. We reached out to those crews to shoot in Milwaukee um, and other places in that area. Uh, and our DP and director from our Danny Kirkpatrick project uh, lives in New York. Uh, so, so it's been helpful. Yeah. And also, I'm assuming the prices of shooting. I think a lot of what we're all learning about COVID is that we can be much more um, economical um, and get more done. And considering that video is the language of emotional communication, what does that spell for the future for companies and brands? Yeah, I think there's going to be a, a natural wanting to to have that elastic effect of going back as far as possible to where you started so that we're stretching the elastic a little bit now and some people will just spring back to what they were doing beforehand. Um, but I think that clients have also seen that if you are really doing something in a budget-conscious fashion, there are ways to achieve it that don't give up too much in terms of creativity or, or value. And I think also the consumer has been, quote-unquote, re-educated or has been reconditioned to accept a different type of normal for the quality of what they're being presented with. And for them, 4K might not matter, right? H might be fine. To have a self-shot photo on the cover of a magazine might be fine. Um, so by having that reconditioning, it is going to change up who and what we consider important on a daily basis from production. Um, and certainly we're having less control over consistency. Like we're trying to use the same cameras in every place so that we can make sure we can match for colors, that we can have a, a really efficient post-production system where the same sorts of files are coming in and don't need to be converted. Uh, we can try and have crews who match frames and set things up the same, <laughs> but, they but we do. don't have, com right. yeah, but we don't have complete control over that in the way that we would normally. So we have to give a little bit there, but we also able to be, and also like there's a little bit less of that intimacy between you and the person you're interviewing um, because you're not there to, physically to nod to what they're saying to extract more from them with just a look and you're really busy now aren't you yeah it's been amazing so at first we were really afraid i guess we were like okay we had just finished a project for first robotics uh a 360 vr project 
um, around their competitions and around what it means to participate in FIRST, which is this incredible STEM competition, as you know, uh, for 600,000 kids around the world to learn robotics and, and um, science, technology, engineering, math, and, and art, of course. Um, but we had just finished that, so we were thankful that we had just had that uh, go to go to go to the client, um, but we had a numerous other uh, projects that got cancelled. You know, in that mid March uh, week and a half, and we were really wondering what the next few months was going to look like. And thankfully, by coming up with these kits and looking at those solutions and looking what at what American Idol and Tiger King reunion specials and all these other things were doing. Um, everyone was issuing earpo- AirPods to everybody to, to contribute to conversations and how they were sending out ring lights and what Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon were doing and what looks they were going for and what looks they were trying to make sure they weren't going for to make it seem more authentic, authentic and acknowledging the situation. Like taking all that information in and coming up with these kits that we thought would best suit our client. And then as things opened up more and people um, reached a comfort level around physical shooting and how to do that in the most mindful way, um, we just found that it opened up us up to more and more clients who were seeking that expertise. I would love you to give three insights to a listener who wants to create branded content. Don't go into it with a precious mentality about where your brand appears and how your brand appears. I think um, it's going to be a collaborative effort. Um, But sometimes a brand can undo good work by wanting to make sure they plaster their name in as many places as possible. And most good work is done when uh, the viewer isn't constantly being reminded that it's a commercial. So I think with branded content, as long as you enable the story to take the center stage, um, the viewer will be quite okay with acknowledging that it was paid for by a brand. Um, so I think that that's always just a good to know. It's like trust your storyteller. Let them know how many instances of the brand you would like to appear and how, um, but also allow them to get creative with how it appears. and how they reflect not only your brand in terms of a visual sense of seeing the logo or the word mark, but also in terms of how it represents what your brand means and what you want people to feel about your brand. I think that that's a a keynote for branded content. It's like you want it to achieve a feeling that you want people to associate with your brand. Um, With branded content, I also think that you have a real opportunity to get into um, the real stories of anyone and everyone, right? Whether it's your employees, your C-suite, your customers and consumers. Um, so look at who your stakeholders are, look at whose stories you're trying to tell. And then primarily your first question is always going to be, who's your audience for this piece? Yeah, they can be other audiences, but who's the first port of call? Who's the first person you want this to to be made for and if that is just a handful of people like we kind of have this example where we look at the airline industry and it's a tough one to look at right now but with boeing and airbus their client is not the consumer who travels we often get on airplanes and have no idea what airplane we're on and who made it Um, but the airlines are only a handful of companies And so if you're trying to sell more airplanes, maybe you make tailored individual pieces of content for each of those airlines specifically, and they're your one audience member. You've made something because that's where you're going to get your biggest return. So who is it that you're trying to reach and how specific can you be? Um, Because a lot of people just want to put content out that reaches everyone, and maybe that's not the right move. Let's. I want to talk about employees. Give me three insights for our listeners to create compelling, inspiring content for their employees. I think what I loved about the Affleck project as well is that we shared the 
asset that we created with the employees and with the salespeople, the insurance people who are on the ground in the different markets. We shared the asset with them before we shared it with the public. And I think that that's something that is unique. Like, I don't think that Nike share their marketing, their, their new ad that's coming out with their employees before they share it with the world. And why is that important? Because what you're doing by trusting your employees with this story is you're saying, we value you. We want you to know what's coming out that speaks about us, that positions us in the marketplace. We want you to essentially what you do is you, be, you, you, you're treating them in a way that is secret and special and exclusive. And it makes them want to be advocates and ambassadors for the story when it lands. So if you imagine some of these big companies that have, like you're saying in the numbers, hundreds of thousands of employees or tens of thousands of employees, you can help something reach a larger audience if you activate that group of people as ambassadors for the project that you're launching in a, in a way that you can't do with paid media and in a, such an authentic and organic way that is undeniable. Do you have a favorite of like some, whether you did it or not, um, some company that has just done a stellar job of using uh, film and video to inspire and to ignite their employees? Um, look, even with Intel, um, on the project Daniel piece, we got word back that it was, it had created a boost in employee morale and they could measure that with a certain group of metrics that include number of sick days not taken, um, you know, number of employee turnover, things like that that can be expensive for a business. But if they believe, people believe in a business and the message that it's representing and the things that it's trying to do in the world, they will stay longer and work harder and feel more positive while at work, right? And so we received that metric back from Intel. We heard that the piece was also scoring well as a talent acquisition tool, which is incredibly important in any sort of skilled labor force market, um, and especially in relation to tech where it's so competitive in Silicon Valley to get good people. And so we found that they they told us that it was being referenced by the people who were they were speaking to as potential hires as a positive attribute. And so it, there it was like, those are the sorts of intangibles that can result. But if people speaking directly to their employees, I think, you know, Patagonia gets referenced again and again for good reason. They are so singular in their outlook. They know exactly who they represent. They put their money where their mouth is. They're willing to take a backseat where it's necessary and to pursue a, a front position where it's urgent. Um, and anyone who works for them, I think their employee turnover, I'd love to see their employee turnover numbers, but they've got to be so really low. low. Yeah. Right? Yep. Costco has incredible employee numbers, the way they treat their employees. You, oftentimes, if you're shopping at Costco, you can ask people how long they've been there and they'll give you staggering numbers in terms of like <laughs> Trader Joe's as well. Yeah. I think, yeah. you know, it's, it's like a combination of things, right? It's companies that put out messaging that reflects um, and that is consistent with the way they treat their people internally. And there's so often a disparate set of circumstances between what a company tells the public and how it treats their employees internally. And that's what leads to these terrible moments for, you know, like in terms of uh, how staff are treated and how they feel they're being represented. And it's happening right now quite often. Um, and we're seeing it. We're seeing CEOs and others resign. We're seeing staff leave and vocalize the reasons they left for having workplaces that were, um, you know, acidic or, um, you know, detrimental. And, and not not like Refinery29, you know, not to point fingers, but it always represented itself as a place that stood for women, right? You know, content created by women, for women in a very authentic and, and positive sense that was moving the needle in the right way. But then when you hear the stories about how they treated people internally, it's kind of horrible. And that's where it's really hard to fathom because... They stood for something great 
and could have been something greater had they only had they only followed through and been more human in their day-to-day operations. And that's hard sometimes for a business, but it's so important. What are the most important three, four, whatever insights to um, someone sitting in the client's chair um, or they're in a not-for-profit or such, they're a client and they want to produce the most incredible film or video, whether it's a doc, miniseries, et cetera. What are your most important insights for them? Well, for them, it's got to be what, what are you looking to achieve and who are you trying to communicate with? And, and probably the reverse of that, who are you trying to communicate with and what are you hoping to achieve, right? And really, that's it. Oh, it sounds so easy. It's not so easy. That what you do is so magic. No, because that, that opens up the world, right? That opens up the world. And then what, what else haven't I asked you, Elliot Kotek, you magical person that's doing amazing things to, to help shape um, communications and making technology um, tangible for the sake of humanity? Look, it's just, you know, for us, it's um, a case of walking the walk and talking the talk, like even on our next normal, whether the client knows it or not. Um, you know, we've had... We've had crew members who are on the autism spectrum. We've had crew members that are non-binary. We've had um, most of the producers. Um, in fact, I think everyone except for me is female uh, on the on the kind of executive level. Um, so it's it's a case of doing the quiet things that that back up what you talk about and what you want to see in the world, right? And you don't have to be and you don't have to be political to do that. You just have to kind of be open, be listening, be looking, be active. Um I work a lot with Accenture as well and I love them um so much. And then what I love about them also is that they've got four hundred and thirty thousand employees. That's that's so hard to fathom a company of that size. And so because it's all about the people, they need to invest in them. And they acknowledge that people learn in different ways. And so their learning department really looks at how many different things they can try, podcasts, VR, traditional storytelling, what is going to resonate. And then also like how, like something that's going to resonate with one person might not resonate with a second. So let's try something different for that second person. And even when it's just content for them, in in their case, that exists within their internal structures, it's mostly available on their internal sites and frameworks and infrastructure. Um, When you have that large an audience um, inbuilt in your business, it provides such a high level of engagement that you can really get good feedback on what's working and what's resonating and what's not. And so I think that clients who are willing to experiment, who know that not one size fits all and maybe try not to do one thing that is going to solve everything and put so much pressure on that one piece of content to do everything for them, but to really look at it as one piece in a puzzle that means community outreach or other communication strategies that the the tool of video or the tool of 360 is one piece of a puzzle and not to try and put too much emphasis on any particular piece but look at how they do it in the immediate future but also over time and to allow things to have time right like yeah, that's often not a luxury that some people feel they have, but it's that consistency and that approach that that usually works best. I have to ask you, in our TikTok world of six second, 10 second, 20 second videos, what is the future of video in terms of its format and influence? Look, I think it's everything for everyone. I think that's the beautiful thing about where we're at right now and what you're seeing with what we're creating. Like the next normal, we're creating 15-second, 30-second, 60-second, three-minute pieces. Uh, the VR we're creating for First Robotics is, you know, is is like about three and a half minutes in length. We've got Black Boys, which is a, a feature documentary. We've got another one coming out called 90291 Venice Unzipped about the housing affordability crisis it's a feature documentary that might have a tv show component to it afterwards you know so it's it's to think that no one needs to nail one format that your audience find out where your audience lives and 
create something organic to that environment. Um, but to know that as consumers, we can engage with a 30 second commercial and feel as moved by it as a 90 minute documentary or a two hour documentary that we don't need to be precious about the boundaries and how we play across the boundaries anymore. We just need to make sure that the story that we want to tell fits the format in which we're telling it and that we're giving it the opportunity to resonate. I want to ask you about um, the kind of commercials, the ads we're seeing during COVID, because they're not about buying stuff. They're about companies, you know, empowering or being empathetic. And what do you think of that? You think that that's a temporary um, new tonality or is that going to have, uh, is it going to stick more? Look, I think it's also representative of the shooting environment is that we, knowing that they could only do things at a certain quality level, they had to speak more to what people are thinking right now. I think it's a tonal shift for now, but I think it represents the language with which corporates communicate to consumers now. I think what they're doing is speaking more directly and then coming up with more pieces of content that ensure that they're continuing to communicate to their consumers just like they would have to continue to communicate with the stock market investors and others and continue to inform them and educate them as to what's going on internally to be as transparent as possible and to be as accountable as possible. I think we're seeing a lot of pieces that feel the same, that we can't identify which brand they belong to because when we look back and think back about the history, we just remember, oh, okay, cool. A lot of people have shown us a lot of Zoom calls and how they're all being really kind of lovey-dovey during this moment. That's not to denigrate those pieces of content. They're all doing the most with what they could come up with at that time to be responsive and be meaningful. But there are certain businesses that are going to stand out because they show you steps that they've taken, programs that they've backed, people that they've helped. in a Their, their humanity. Way. Yeah, but in a tangible way, in an effective and accountable way, not just in a mood or a statement, but in an action. And I think that we're going to very readily distinguish the companies that took action versus the companies that just issued statements. So in closing, and I hate to close, I just want to start, I want to end where I started. So in the beginning, I said, you know, who is Elliot Kotak? So I want to say, ask What's the next step for Elliot? What's the future for Elliot? Look, uh, you know, we've got Black Boys coming out really shortly, and we've got a beautiful education partner in XQ um, who are going to be issuing a curriculum to go with that film. Uh, we're looking at taking it to various education uh, in it, through it, different education initiatives so it reaches the greatest amount of people possible. It's about how we invest in black boys in this country, um, how we've given them resources if they show athletic prowess or entertaining artistry, but how do we support them from their emotional core? How do we support the systemic, uh, how do we overcome the systemic educational inequalities? And so by looking at that in the framework of how history has created that scenario um, and how we can have options to move forward, it's not a negative piece. It's not a dark piece. It's a, a, a love piece about how we can move forward and change some of these very simple things to ensure that we all have this bright future ahead of us. I think that's super exciting for us. Um, you know, we just want to continue making great content for great partners to continue to inspire and innovate. Um, and, uh, and we're just happy to be along for the ride. Ah, Elliot. Well, this has been a huge pleasure. Um, I know we could talk for hours, but I don't think we can end this one. We can come back and visit it. Um, I want to thank you so much. Um, I want to ask our listeners to, you know, please um, go on to iTunes, uh, give us a rating. I hope it's a really good one. And ultimately, I want to ask you, what is your purpose? 